The Second London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689 is a strong confession. It's a confession that our elders agree with uh, substantially. And out of the 32 chapters and 157 paragraphs, I disagree with two. Two. And I remember a few years ago being online in a conversation with a group of people, and one of the, peop one of the people put like a description of what a Reformed and Baptistic person was. So we are not a Baptist church. We're, we're, we're Baptistic in our theology, but we hold to the doctrines of many Reformed Baptistic churches. And so this, this person put online this description of what a Reformed Baptist would look like, and there were five categories, and under each, each, underneath each category were five descriptions. So like under the category of worship were five descriptions and things that you needed to hold to in this man's mind if you were to be considered a Reformed Baptist. I agreed with 24 of the 25, and I typed a message, so, and I didn't tell him which one. I said, if I agree with 24 of the 25, you're telling me I can't join your club, even though I was already in this club. And he wrote back, if you don't believe in keeping the Sabbath today for Christians, then you're not a Reformed Baptist. Cut and dry. That's what it took to be Reformed and Baptistic in your theology in this man's mind. Well, the historic confessions of faith that come from the Reformation are all great documents. But they are synopsis of what the Bible teaches, they are not the Bible. They are great descriptions of what the Bible says in different categories, but they are not the Bible. So we are bound by, as believers that if the confessions seem to be in conflict with what the Bible teaches, we need to hold to what the Bible teaches. So to go against a document like the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith is not a minor thing for me. It has driven people that have theology like mine for hundreds of years. So I don't take it lightly, but I take even more seriously fidelity to the scriptures. So in the two paragraphs, and there's actually one statement. I don't think it's very, very correct to say the Pope is the Antichrist, as in capital T-H, the Antichrist. <clears throat> so I would disagree with that as well. But these two small chapters that happen in the, the um, chapter 22 entitled Religion, Religious Worship and the Sabbath Day. Paragraph seven says this. As it is the law of nature that in general a proportion of time by God's appointment be set apart for the worship of God, so by his word in a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment binding all men in all ages, he hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week. And from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's day, and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath the observation of the last day of the week being abolished. So it's not only that the Sabbath, of the Sabbath law, the fourth commandment, is perpetually binding for all men in the way that the Old Testament states, but it is all those requirements have been moved from the Jewish Sabbath to the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. Now, in these confessions, they give a list of scripture passages to justify what they've said. This passage gives, this particular paragraph has four references. Exodus 20, verse 8, the Ten Commandments, the fourth commandment where it is, it is um, talked about in verse four, from verses 8 to 11. They only reference verse 8. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, which uses the phrase, when you gather on the first day of the week, Paul's admonishing the Corinthians to have their offering together when they gather on the first day of the week. Acts chapter 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, that's the Eutychus story, remember? Paul comes in, preaches till midnight, Eutychus falls asleep in the window, falls down, presumed dead, Paul says he's not dead. They were gathering on the first day of the week. And then Revelation 1.10, where John's vision begins that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. 
So those verses all support the idea that we should worship on Sunday by precept that's coming from an example that's coming from the New Testament. But I see nothing in those verses that talk about, except for the original command of the Sabbath, that all of the Sabbath laws are then imported into the first day of the week. So we have an exploration to do, correct? Here's the second paragraph. Now, this, these are paragraphs seven and eight. Paragraphs one through six, they're phenomenal. They're great. They, they describe a great view of what the Bible says about worship. So I'm not discounting everything the confession says about worship. But the par final paragraph, paragraph eight in chapter 22, says this, the Sabbath is then kept. So they made the claim that we keep the Sabbath on the Lord's day first day of the week, the Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord when men, after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering their common affairs aforehand, do not only observe and holy rest all day, a rest from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employment and recreations, but also are taken up the whole time in the public and private exercise of this worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. So there's some truths in this that the Sabbath entails in us, such as the duties of uh, the necessities of uh, the duties of necessity and mercy. Three chap three verses are given. Isaiah 58, 13. Now we already have talked about Isaiah 56, right? Two chapters later, Isaiah 56, we looked at last week and we learned that keeping the Sabbath, being faithful not to profane the Sabbath for the nation of Israel was that broad terminology saying all of your heart and mind should be devoted to the Lord and being obedient to him. And that's what the way Isaiah uses it. And it's only those people, the eunuch, the foreigner, and all people who receive the blessings of salvation. It's only those who keep the Sabbath, who are devoted to the Lord. In chapter 58, it will come up again for us in a few weeks. And in that chapter, we're admonished to quit keeping the Sabbath for our own benefit and to keep it for the glory of the Lord. So I thought it was helpful for us if we took today and we looked at what the Bible says about the Sabbath and that we, we are clear on the beautiful theology that is the Sabbath in the scriptures, but also clear that the, the confessions overstep by demanding us. I'm tipping my hand a little bit here, but I also don't want us to be the people who say, I don't have to keep the Sabbath. I don't want to just dismiss it in that way because there is a rich theology behind the Sabbath that leads to Christ that doesn't release us from entering into our rest. So we want to be able to see that today. So I want to ask the question and answer it. How are New Testament Christians to obey the Sabbath commands? How are New Testament Christians to obey the Sabbath commands? And you may say, okay, this is just going to be one of those academic, I can tell you're teaching at the seminary this semester, Rob, it's going to be one of those academic things that I'm just going to tune out on. Don't you dare. Don't do it. Your eternal salvation depends on it. The teaching in the Old Testament about the Sabbath and its fulfillment in Christ affects us today. So I don't want us to go away and say, I don't have to keep the Sabbath. You'll see what the end conclusion is when we get through some of these scriptures. But this is important for us. It affects us today. We have responsibility with regard to the Sabbath. It is just not to keep it externally like the confessions say. So let's look at the scriptures, shall we? Because it's important for us and it will bring us joy. It is so full of the richness of God's work in Christ. It will bring us great joy. So I'm avoiding the academic lecture. And let me tell you why. The Sabbath occurs, the word Sabbath in the ESV occurs 144 times. 144 times. 88 of them in the Old Testament 56 of them in the New Testament. So often we hear things like, well, the Sabbath is the only command of the Ten Commandments that's not reiterated in the New Testament. Well, I agree that it's not reiterated to keep as the, as the Jewish nation under the Old Covenant should keep it, but I do not agree that it is not addressed in the New Testament. Of those 56 New Testament occurrences, 45 of them are in the Gospels, and 38 of those 
are in disputes that Jesus has with the leaders of his day about his, who he is and what he's doing and the days that he's doing it on. And he is attacking the legalism of those Jewish leaders of the day. So 38 of those 45. The other seven are just mentioning as time markers where the disciples are, are preparing for the Lord's Supper or they are um, um, dealing with the death and resurrection of Christ and where they were on certain days. Nine times it's mentioned in Acts and either describing movements of the disciples, seven of those times, as they've done this on, on the Sabbath day, um, or twice it's mentioned in sermons addressing unbelievers and condemning them because everything that they're preaching to them has been read to them on the Sabbath days. Two times in the letters, Colossians 2.16 and Hebrews 4.9. Now, if the Sabbath is one of those central commands for new covenant believers to have to keep, I wonder why it just diminishes when we get to the new covenant in its mentions. I would think if it was something that we were commanded to keep as the confession state, that we would see the letters full of ways that we are to keep the Sabbath and keep it holy and not profane it in the same way the Old Testament covenant people of God were commanded. So we need to do some exploration of the scriptures. Now I give you those facts only to say that's hopefully as academic as we'll get. And we're only gonna cover 143 of the 144 verses. <laughs> not true, not true. We're not gonna cover everything the Bible says about the Sabbath. But what I wanna do is develop a theology of the Sabbath that I think is clear in the teaching of the Old Testament and the New Testament. So let's start. The Sabbath principle is found without mentioning that a Sabbath, right? In Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So there's our Sabbath principle. This is where, where you hear people a lot say, well, listen, you, can't, you just can't take the Sabbath and just dismiss it because it's not just for the nation of Israel. It's a creation principle. And I would say, well, the principle is found in creation, but there's no command in that creation account that guides believers on how to act. We just learn what God did and all the Sabbath commands in the Old Testament and promises are all based on this um, work of God when he created for six days and rested on the Sabbath, on the seventh day. And he didn't call it the Sabbath, but the Sabbath means rest, and it refers to that seventh day of the week kind of rest. So the first occurrence of the Sabbath is actually not in the Ten Commandments. And, and don't worry, you're going to turn to several passages of Scripture. I'm not going to read you all the passages. You're going to turn to them. I just don't want you to have to turn to all of them that we're going to look at. Um, so the first actual occurrence in the scriptures is in Exodus 16, 23. This is what Yahweh has commanded, talking about the manna and the governing principles of the manna that he is providing. This is what Yahweh has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to Yahweh. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till morning. This day, now this, the, the scripture passage ends there. This day, remember what happened before? When, when, if they would gather and try to keep stuff till the next morning, what would happen? It would, rot. It would just rot. The, purpose, the principle and purpose was trust God. God said he will provide for you day in and day out. Don't hoard what you have today thinking, well, maybe God won't be faithful tomorrow. He will be faithful. And when the people tried to hoard it, what happened? It rotted and God was providing faith, faithfully provided what he said. So he gives this command and, and this day would be different than what they held from that night would go over to the next day and it would not rot because this is what God promised for them. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to Yahweh. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. So they were to trust the Lord that the other days they were not to keep it overnight. This day they were, and not to go look for it the next day. So when God spoke that, that's what all the people did, right? They didn't. They didn't do that. But the question before us, before we even get to the next verse is, would they trust in faith that God would work on their behalf? 
Would they rest in the promises of God for the manna? Verse 27 of Exodus 16. On the seventh day, some of the people went out together, but they found none. Now that sounds simple enough. Oh, I guess God was. I guess he was going to be faithful and, and not give it this morning, but let, let what we had last night hold over. But God didn't look at it so lightly. And Yahweh said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and laws? See, Yahweh has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people then rested on the seventh day. So even in the first mention of the Sabbath, we see the people neglecting it and God showing them the law. Say no. What did he show them? Grace, didn't he? He didn't kill them right there for disobeying his law. He gave them the other chance to come back and trust him to provide that food on the next Sabbath. And he was generous and he was, he was full of grace to them. So we see this principle being established here that the way God deals with these people. He sets down the commands, but he is long-suffering toward them. And he forgives them. But he always sets the pattern of how he will forgive them and what punishment is ahead of them. And then he gets the glory when he decides not to punish them because he has exercised forgiveness. Well, the next occurrence occurs in the Ten Commandments. This is where I want you to turn. Turn to Exodus chapter 20. And it's going to be helpful for us to look at both of the givings of the law, both in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Because we are going to learn the principles of the Sabbath here. So Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 8. Fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. On it... You shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days, Yahweh made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So there we see some of the language in the confession, don't we? But keeping the Sabbath was not just for the person, it was for the, all the household and, and the cattle and, and the sojourner and everybody else. Everyone was to receive the blessings of God on the observation of the Sabbath. And in this giving of the law, the rationale for it is tied to creation, what we just read in Genesis chapter 2. So we have a creation foundation for the Sabbath. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5. We're going to begin in verse 12. And we're going to learn two more things about the Sabbath in Deuteronomy's account of the giving of the law. See if you can just pick them out as I read this. Verse 12 of Deuteronomy 5. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as Yahweh your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and Yahweh your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, Yahweh your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Do you see the additions here? The more we learn about the Sabbath, now we learn why the Sabbath is for everybody under your roof and all your animals and your servants. It's so that they can receive the same blessing as you. They can rest as well. And we also don't have it here tied to creation as the rationale. We have it tied to redemption as the rationale. 
So the Sabbath is reminding them both of the creative work of God and the redemptive work of God, and it is to bless everyone. There is, there is the idea that the Sabbath is going to bring that rest, and it's going to bring um, compassion toward the people that are under your roof. Turn to Exodus 31. I know I'm having you turn back, but turn back to Exodus 31. If I could find Exodus 31, I would read. There we go. Exodus 31, beginning in verse 12. And Yahweh said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generation that you may know that I, Yahweh, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days Yahweh made the heaven and earth, made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So here we have even more understanding of what the Sabbath was. The Sabbath was a sign to the people that it was God who sanctified them. You see the redemptive purposes coming through? This is where the redemptive and the creative purposes all come together in one of the passages because it is him, it's a reminder that Yahweh does the sanctifying. So we are moving into the redemptive realm. It's Yahweh who does the saving. You need to rest and remember that I'm the one who does that, but also the creation rationale is given um, as well in these verses. So there is a sign, but there's also the purpose and there's also the punishment. The punishment is death. Now, this is, this is why in Isaiah 56, um, I said that those, those commands about the Sabbath were the overarching commands that revealed a heart turned toward Yahweh. Because right here in these verses, above all, you shall keep the Sabbath. Above all things, so this is the way when the seventh day is, is sanctified, it is not profaned, it is depend, they rest and they depend on God for everything. It doesn't matter whether they work their fields, God will sustain them while they rest. It doesn't matter whether they trim, trim, or take care of their vineyards, God will sustain them while they rest. It do, nothing matters because God is sovereign and powerful and he is working to sustain everything that they need. So the one day in seven is just the outward example of the seven days of seven. And if they don't keep the Sabbath, the penalty is strong. It is death. It uses that language of being cut off. So this is a serious thing for the nation of Israel. Well, it even takes us further, doesn't it? Because we can look at many other things about the Sabbath in the, in the first five books of the Bible, but we also need to see how the Sabbath is expanded into sabbatical years and years of jubilee because those are even more important to help us see the theology of the Sabbath. Leviticus chapter 25, verses one through seven. You can turn there if you want, but I'll read them. Yahweh spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to Yahweh. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to Yahweh. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves and for your hired servant and the sojourner who lives with you and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be food. 
So now what is to be done weekly is to be manifested in a yearly show of trust to the Lord. That if God can provide for the day, he can provide for the year, and will you honor that? Now remember, part of the reason that Israel was sent into captivity is because they didn't give the land its Sabbath rest. And while they were in captivity, the land would get their Sabbath rest. Now, is that saying it's all about the land? No, because it's the overarching disobedience of the people that caused it. And so not keeping the Sabbath, especially in the year-long trust of the Lord that he will do his provision, was the ultimate end of all that sin where God said, I'm sending you into captivity. But there's even a greater picture of this. Turn to Leviticus 25. I want you to see this. I just read from the first seven verses of Leviticus 25, but I also want you to see what it says about the year of Jubilee. And if, we, if you remember our study through this, you remember a, a lot more than I'm going to be able to say this morning. But look at verse 8, 8 through 12 of Leviticus 25. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement. You shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan." Now, there, there is the rest of this chapter gives all the different ways that in the year of Jubilee, debts are forgiven and land is returned to the families who originally owned it. Because the people didn't have the land, God had the land and he assigned it to the different tribes. And so they were to do with it as God said. And if they had to sell a piece of land in order to meet financial needs, in the year of Jubilee, it would come back to them. It would come back just as God said, because God is the one who owned the land, and the stewards did what the master said to do. So it even gets increases even more. So in the 50th year, you have this grand picture of setting everyone free, setting everyone free from debts and any burdens they had to other people. Now, you'll remember last week when we looked ahead a little bit and I told you why the last section of Isaiah had to do with us as well. I showed you in Luke chapter 4 where Jesus quoted Isaiah chapter 61 and he said, in this, this is being fulfilled in your presence with him coming the first time. Well, all that is language of the year of Jubilee, of setting the captives free. So even in the Old Testament, we're starting to get this glimpse. If we build our biblical theology, we're getting this glimpse that the Sabbath had more purpose than just the rest, physical rest on the seventh day. And if you remember in Daniel chapter 7, and I'm, boy, I'd really like to just preach all of that again, but I'm not going to do it. In verses, no, you don't want me to do it. You wouldn't just miss lunch and dinner. You'd probably miss bacon and eggs for breakfast. Daniel chapter 7 verses 24 through 27 uses the idea of the jubilee to point us forward to what Christ accomplishes. So when we read in Daniel chapter 7, um, 70 weeks, 10 jubilees, the uber jubilee, the super jubilee. Remember when we have these numbers in the Old Testament, especially in the prophetic and apocalyptic literature, they have a meaning. So now we have this perfecting of jubilee. All those jubilee years, now we have 10 of them put together and what's going to happen when those 10 are put together, this imagery is used. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put it into sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in, everla bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both the vision and the prophet and to anoint the most holy place. So the Sabbath commands with its foundation in creation, given in the law, having a creative and a redemptive foundation that also have the mark of compassion for people and relieving debts and setting them free is now used in Daniel to point us forward of the promise of the Messiah when the Messiah comes. So before we even open the New Testament, we're like, I bet the Sabbath has something to do with Jesus. Are you with me? Are you tracking? Turn to Psalm 92, the last Old Testament text. 
Psalm 92. It is interesting that in the worship book, the song book, the worship book of God's people, the Jews, the word Sabbath occurs one time in the superscription to Psalm 92. And when we see that, when you read the Psalms, don't forget about those superscriptions. The the smaller print capital letters that preceded, those are very important. Psalm 92, the superscription says, a song, or a psalm, a song for the Sabbath. It's the only time the word Sabbath occurs in the Psalter. I find that very interesting for the book of worship for God's people. Now let's read this. You need to see what Psalm 92 says. It is good to give thanks to Yahweh, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, right? Total faithfulness, morning and night, to the music of the lute and the harp and the melody of the lyre. For you, O Yahweh, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. Now we learned in Genesis that God ceased his work in creation. Now when he ceased his work in creation, if there had not been sin entered the world, there would have been no more work. Everything was perfectly created, it was good, but sin entered the world. So God begins working again, doesn't he? To sustain the world, to draw people to himself. This is what God's work is. And this is what the psalm is praising. The psalm doesn't praise his work in creation. It praises his work after creation. Look at verse five. Well, the last part of verse four. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Yahweh. Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. A fool cannot understand this. That Though the wicked spout like grass, sprout like grass, and the evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Yahweh, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Yahweh, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me the fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteousness, the righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like, the, like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of Yahweh. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that Yahweh is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Do you see what what work they're praising? They're praising the work of his ruling justice, both to punish the wicked and to exalt the righteous. That's the song for the Sabbath. It doesn't even deal with the creative works. It deals with the ongoing work of God to redeem his people and save them out of the snare of the enemy. Well, we could speak of the prophets as well. And you don't need to turn there. I want you to, to turn to Matthew chapter 12. But I'm gonna remind you of where we were at the very beginning of Isaiah to remind us that the prophets even as they constantly call the people back to obedience, they are constantly calling them out for doing the outward things without an inward change, to do the outward things without a heart turned toward justice. And this is where Isaiah began. Remember the introduction to the introduction in Isaiah chapter one? We read these words. Hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Man, that's a pretty bad insult for God's people, isn't it? What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says Yahweh. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocation. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. What's the solution? 
Wash your hands. Make yourself clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says Yahweh. Though your sins are like scarlet, they may be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword from the mouth of Yah- for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Do you see? The external means nothing to God. It, it's an abomination to him. He doesn't want it at all if the heart is not turned toward them. It, he, with the outward signs of the inward change that he wants to see, loving justice, ruling justice, uh, doing mercy, loving the needs of others, caring for the poor, that's what he wants to see. Then the offerings that he has prescribed will be received, not because they're being given as an offering, but because their hearts are turned toward him. And it's the worship on the Sabbath that he deals with most clearly. So the prophets, we could go to dozens of passages where the same kinds of things are being met. But let me recap for you what we've learned in the Old Testament, okay? These are the points I want you to grab onto as we move to the New Testament. First, Yahweh gives the Sabbath as a weekly blessing to his people because he has created the world and redeemed them from Egypt. And he wants them to remember that he is the one who sanctifies his people, both creation and redemption. Second, the Sabbath is a time for God's people to worship and honor God, rest from work, and trust in God's provision, even when they did not tend to their crops and vineyards. It was a time to show compassion to mankind and to do good toward them. The Sabbath had a vertical and a horizontal implication. All of those commands to other people were to do good for them. It was to care for them in a way that God would care. Thirdly, it is so important, it was so important that profaning the Sabbath by working, by not honoring the day in obedience to God's commands, that profaning it meant death and being cut off from God's people. Fourth, Israel would be cut off for their disobedience to Yahweh, and while in exile, the land would receive its Sabbath rest. Fifth and finally, the Sabbath is the most inclusive picture of God's people's relationship to him. Keeping the Sabbath was a picture of a life that was completely devoted to and trusting in Yahweh's provision for their physical and spiritual well-being. Remember, so this is the sign that you will know that it is I who sanctify you. And it's that physical and spiritual well-being every minute of every day. But profaning the Sabbath was the ultimate sign that they had gone their own way, thinking their own work and effort was sufficient and that they were their own sanctifiers rather than Yahweh. That's just the passages that we looked at developed that view of Sabbath. So now we move to the Gospels. Now we can look at a bunch. I told you there are 56 occurrences of this. We're going to look at one in each gospel and you're only going to turn to three of them. Deal? Okay. Only to three of them, I think. The Sabbath was always a flashpoint between the religious leaders and Jesus. Jesus was doing things regularly on the Sabbath because he knew the hearts of the people and he was uh, pulling out their actions against the truth of God and the truth of God's word. So in Matthew, I already had you turn there. Let me get there. In Matthew chapter 12, I want you to see that there are two instances of healing on the Sabbath in verses 1 through 8 and 9 through 14. But now turn back to chapter 11. What is the context of the teaching on the Sabbath? Verse 25. Very familiar verses for you. At the time Jesus, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, 
For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The rest that Jesus promises is rest for their souls. It's rest because they no longer have to fight for their own salvation. It's rest because he is going to deal with their sins. So this is, this verse that we know so well has this Sabbath connotation that it is Jesus that is the center point of the promises of the Sabbath rest. Now look at what happens in verse one of chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, if you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. So greater than the temple is greater than all of that Old Testament covenant including the Sabbath. And if you had known, verse 7, what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So he's claiming the authority that we just read that God gave him to reveal himself and God to anyone he chooses. He's claiming that authority is also authority of the Sabbath because the Sabbath, he is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. It is he who is the Lord of the Sabbath. Look on at verse nine. He went on from there and entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, which one of you has a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and he was restored, healthy like the other. And it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So he heals on the Sabbath. He challenges them again. And look, Jesus is doing good on the Sabbath, which was a purpose of the Sabbath, right? It was to do good to fellow men. And what do the, what do the leaders do? You hear that it's the Pharisees. They go out and do evil on the Sabbath. They're the exact opposite of what Jesus is doing, and yet they're trying to set themselves in the authority. And Jesus is saying, I am Lord of the Sabbath, and he's not violating any Sabbath principle that was set down in the Old Testament. And how do we know that? This text tells us, but also we know that our Savior did not sin. Turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, we're going to look at verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. So here we have the same scenario in Mark that we just looked at in Matthew. Look at what verse 27 says. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now that's packed. It's, notice that he doesn't say that the Sabbath was made for the Jews, not the Jews for the Sabbath. He says, man, Jesus looked at the Sabbath as for everyone. He looked at the Sabbath as a gift for everyone. And then he reiterates the fact that he is Lord even of the Sabbath. And that's referring back to chapter two, verse 10, when that, in chapter two, verse 10, after he has healed the paralytic and he's forgiven of his sins, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. 
So he's doing the miracles and he's doing them in a way to show that he has the authority to forgive sins. And here he's Lord, not only does he have that authority to forgive sins, but he is Lord of the Sabbath. He's marrying them together in Mark's presentation of this. That he is Lord of the Sabbath is the one who is able to forgive sins. Look at verse one of chapter three. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. For they knew the answer, right? That's why they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Again, on the Sabbath, the day to do good, they challenge Jesus for these works that are giving voice to his authority over the Sabbath as the one who is Lord of the Sabbath. One more place for you, Luke 13. This brings us even a different understanding of Jesus and what he's teaching us about the truth Sabbath as he interacts with these these religious leaders. Look at verse 10. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she made straight. She was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Now you would think he'd just be rejoicing at what he just saw. But he says, yeah, I don't want to see that again. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, do not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. You see the releasing of the bondage to Satan on the Sabbath day. This is the one that the Lord of the Sabbath has the right to do and the power to do is to release people from the bondage of sin and death. This is a physical representation of it that points us toward the spiritual representation, which Luke goes on to tell us in other passages. In in John chapter 5, verses 1 through 9, Jesus heals the invalid man by the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees again are mad, uh, accosting the healed man for taking up his bed. Say, you can't take up your bed. That's unlawful on the Sabbath. He's just been healed. And they're giving him grief for taking up his bed. And Jesus responds like this. My father is working until now, and I am working. And then he launches into an extended discourse on his equality with his father and the authority that the father has given him to do what he is doing. And then two chapters later in John chapter seven, he talks about this healing and he says this, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but received from the fathers and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken and you are angry with me on the Sabbath, I made a man's whole body well, did you not judge by appearance but judge with right judgment? I want to draw your attention to this because Jesus is working and the Father is working. Jesus says both of those things are true. And so just as The old covenant people were called to enter into their rest. And we're going to find out in a minute that they didn't make it into their rest because of their sin. The father was working to redeem them throughout that time. He had set aside his work and rested in creation, but he was working to redeem his people. Jesus is working to do the same thing. 
He is working to bring the people of God out of bondage, not from Egypt, but from their sin. And he's doing it as the Lord of the Sabbath because the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. As I told you, the epistles, that's all the letters. Um, we're not going to deal with Acts in this, in this context, but all of the letters that follow in the last part, the second half of the New Testament, it only happens twice that the Sabbath is mentioned. There's another place it could be alluded to, but I'm just dealing with the places where the Sabbath is, um, is specifically mentioned. So all those prominent laws in the Old Covenant, two times mentioned in all the letters. Those letters that are geared to the churches, telling them how to navigate their Christian life, only mention the Sabbath twice. Once, it mentions it in Romans, and in Romans 14, Paul teaches that we're not to divide over this. He says, who are you to pass judgment? This is verses four through six. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. So Paul doesn't forbid keeping the Sabbath, does he? But he does say, don't judge each other. Now, if Paul tells us not to judge each other about whether we keep the Sabbath or not, do you think it can be uh, an eternal command for all people of all time, including New Testament believers, that they must keep the Sabbath? Paul wouldn't say it doesn't matter. Just don't judge each other about this. God is your judge. You need to live in accordance with how he has called you to live. But there is freedom in this. So the Sabbath is not forbidden keeping it, but it has to be kept with the right motives. And this is why Paul talks in Galatians and Colossians about not returning to those kinds of things as if it was part of your salvation. It's not part of your salvation. Salvation is all of God. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. In verse 6, Paul says, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. And then in verses 12 through 15, he says what Jesus accomplished and the freedom that he gave us and, and what he accomplished by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And I want you to see verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now there is a picture Paul is telling us in one verse. All of those Old Testament laws of the Sabbath find their fulfillment in Christ. Don't go back to the shadows. Stay with the fulfillment. Stay with the light. Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath. Christ is the one who brings salvation to the world. He is the one who sets you free and gives you rest. So Paul is very clear that whatever those Old Testament um, pictures of the Sabbath mean, it means that we are not to judge each other and we are not return to return to the laws that captivate us into legalism because they all point to Christ. So don't go back to the law, turn to Christ. He is the fulfillment. Now, one more passage. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Now, I'm not going to exegete this whole passage, but I want you to see that the writer of Hebrews gives us our understanding based on all that we've already learned. All that we've already learned comes to its fruition where the writer of Hebrews applies it to us as new covenant believers. 
So we have in the beginning, remember, Paul is our, the writer of Hebrews, who I don't think is Paul, by the way. It's just I'm used to saying it, but the writer of Hebrews, Apollos, <clears throat> the writer... The writer of Hebrews brings to us the idea of Christ being better, right? That's what he's doing throughout the whole book. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's a, he inaugurates a better covenant. He is, he is a better um, priest. He offers a better sacrifice. Everything is better. And he, we have this long discourse on Psalm 95. And the writer quotes these verses in Psalm 95, beginning in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says... Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. So he talks about this. Now, now catch the meaning of today. Today was today back when the people did not enter the promised land because of their sin. Today was today when David wrote Psalm 95. The promise was still there. And today is today when the writer of Hebrews is writing it as well. So he's taking the promises of the Old Testament that are offered out, and he's saying, today is that day. Even for you and I, today is the day. So keep that in mind. He's applying an Old Testament event through a psalm written several hundred years later to a people that are after Christ, which includes us. Verse 9. On the day of the testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my oath, they shall not enter my rest. So there is a people who God says are not going to enter the rest. And this is what the Sabbath is about, is entering into rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see where he's heading with this. These warning passages in Hebrew are real for believers they're real for people who are in the church and claim Christ because there are some people that are in the church that claim Christ who are not truly of Christ. And so the warning passages are meant to say, don't be that person. And he's going, to ex he's going to exegete Psalm 95 for us, so we need to keep reading. Verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You see the warning? We, we have come to share in Christ if we endure if we make it to the end. As it said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So don't be in the rebellion today. For who were those who were heard, who heard and yet rebelled? So these are people who are redeemed from Egypt, right? They heard the word of the Lord, and yet they were denied entrance into the promised land because of their disobedience. Was it not, who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose body fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient, so they heard and rebelled, they sinned, and they were disobedient, and that had consequences. They were part of the people of God externally, but not internally. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. They did not believe the promises of God. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. You see, the writer of Hebrews is taking the full purpose of the Sabbath, the creation foundation, the redemption foundation, weaving them all together in Christ, and he's giving a warning to them and to us, enter your rest. Enter it, and then finish entering it. And he's going to apply that. We need to keep reading. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, referring to Genesis 2, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, 
that is Psalm 95, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore, listen, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken another day of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Do you see what he's doing? Those people that were forbidden to enter the promised land and died in the wilderness because of their sin, they knew God, they heard God. God had given them the promises and yet because of their rebellion and disobedience, he said, you will not enter the rest. They made it right up to the entrance. They were part of the community externally with the promises entering into the land and at the last minute they didn't make it. And he says... We have to enter our rest. So to obey the Sabbath command is to believe in Jesus. To obey the Sabbath command and to keep it holy is to rest from your own works towards salvation and put your faith and trust in Christ, repenting of your sins. So I say we must obey the Sabbath command, but we do it as the Bible says to do because the Sabbath, the seventh day of rest, pointed forward to Christ who delivered us from our sin. And if we want to enter into our rest, we must first come to Christ. And yet we are part of a body who realizes there may be some among us who do not know Christ, even though they're externally attached to us. So we walk together holding ourselves to the word of God to be obedient. And this is the context. Look back at your text. In the last two verses I'll read today, verse 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is the meaning of the Sabbath. It is to enter into our rest by trusting in Jesus, and then it is to finish the fight and all of those who truly enter their rest by repenting of their sin and believing in Christ will finish. Why? Because the Bible tells us that Jesus says, all that the Father hath given me, I'll lose a couple. No. no, I will not lose any. So if we truly come to Christ, we will not fail to enter our rest because all of that work has been done. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say that that old covenant could not accomplish the forgiving of sins. It is in Jesus in his new covenant. And we have now come to the celestial city. We haven't come to the mountain again, chapter 12. We haven't come to the mountain again that is just, that's the fearful view of God. We haven't come to that mountain. We've come to the new mountain, the new Jerusalem. Now that's speaking of future days, and yet we've entered now. The writer of Hebrews says, we have entered in already. And you think, well, man, is this really, do we really have to harp on all of this? Listen. We have people that have broken my heart right out of this con con uh, congregation. There's one that I will not mention his name, but you, many of you know. He was part of our congregation. He was strong in the Bible. He cared about the salvation of your youth when the, some of our young adults were still youth. He taught with me in Kenya. He, he was actively involved in our congregation. He knew the scriptures better than most people in our body. If I could not remember where a passage was, this man would know it. He was, he was long-suffering with a wife who wanted to divorce him. This man gave every evidence of knowing Christ, and he was among us. And he walked away from his faith. In the, in the period of a couple of months, he had an affair to give credence to, to let his wife divorce him. He showed up in the office and he talked to me about this and he said, I don't think I'm a believer. And I encouraged him of all the past that he did, uh, but I encouraged him that that was all external, then that may not have been of God and he needed to repent of his sins right this minute and beg God to, to show him that he's saved or to save him. 
And I texted him the next day and I asked him if he gotten any clarity and he said, no, I don't have any clarity and I have never heard from him again. He just left my life. He left your life. This is one that if you are going to line up the people in our congregation, he would have been in the top 10% of saying, this man gives evidence of his faith. And he's walked away from his faith. And as far as I know, none of you have ever heard from him again. And I know some of you have contacted him since then. So this, the warnings to enter into our Sabbath rest, please don't go away saying, I don't have to obey the Sabbath. You must obey the Sabbath. You must turn to Christ for the forgiveness of sin. You must rest from your own work for your salvation. And then, after that has happened, you are entering into your rest. And we hold each other accountable. So you've entered into your rest, so stop being anxious about everything. You've entered into your rest, so stop worrying about whether you're saved or not. You've entered into your rest, so stop taking control of your life in ways that you're not supposed to. You've entered into your rest, so stop thinking your kids can't live without you. You're stewards of your kids, not owners. You've entered into your rest, so so stop thinking that your work requires 85 hours a week from you, and if you're not there to do it, the whole corporation will fail. Rest in this life as you pursue Christ, and it shows that you trust him with everything because he is sovereign. It shows that you trust him for all your needs and all the provision that you need. And if you have a good job, it's a gift from him. If he takes it away from you, it's a gift from him. If your children now are walking with the Lord, it's a gift from him. If they they walk away from the Lord, that's his responsibility. Are you going to trust him to be faithful and do what's right and just in your life? That is how we keep the Sabbath. So I don't want to see anybody say, I don't have to keep the Sabbath. I want everybody who is a member of our church to have entered their rest and join us as we pursue the end to fully enter the rest and not between now and then walk away like my friend did and your friend. Just like the people who came into the entrance of the Holy Land and then they could not enter. So let's do it together, amen? And let's rejoice that God has revealed such richness around a biblical theology of the Sabbath. Let's pray. Father, how grateful we are that as we dig into your word and we see the clarity that you have given to us about Jesus as Lord of the Sabbath and that the Sabbath is made for man, all men, anyone who will turn to Christ in repentance and faith. We are grateful, Lord, that even today as we figure Um, all these passages of scripture and we try to let them hang together, will you continue to have them grow in us, that we might meditate on them, that we might see more clearly, um, even if we're not resting in our own lives physically, that you, you command us that we have entered into our rest spiritually and we believe you are faithful to to keep us in our salvation and that our promised inheritance and the promised eternity that we are are hoping for because of the promises of your scripture, you are faithful. So let us live this life, Father, in joy, trusting you. When we need to rest, let us see that we need to rest. The world will go on without us. Father, we pray that you would cause these things to grow in us so that our joy grows. For keeping the Sabbath, as you have commanded, is a joyful thing, and it is something for which we should rejoice. So make it so for us. Keep us learning. Keep us growing. Keep our nose in the scripture and all of our life directed toward you so that the world may know that we have a God who is trustworthy and faithful. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.